She's a former law enforcement officer. In addition to everything that goes on in a law enforcement career, she's here to talk about two incidents, one involving the murder of a 14-month-old child and talking down an armed terrorist, how those events impacted her, and how her experience and lessons learned can help others across the world. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. Calling us from the Atlanta, Georgia area, we have Kerry Wooten on the phone. Kerry is a former law enforcement officer from Virginia Beach, Virginia Police Department. And also, she is the president of Mindset Enterprises. Their website is MindsetEnterprise.net. And Carrie described herself as a serial entrepreneur. Carrie, thanks so much for being a guest on the Law Enforcement Today show. Very much appreciated. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate the invite. It's good to have you here. Before we get into your story, and I, I really want to hear a lot of what you'll be talking about, your experience in policing. Tell us what you do with Mindset Enterprise. Sure. So Mindset Enterprise, we get to focus on the human side of business and leadership. So all the things that really matter with communication and leveling ourselves and our teams up and really making our organizations the best place for everybody to come work. And you, so you do a lot of training. You also do coaching uh, self on your website, mindsenterprise.net, for individuals as well? Yes, we do conference and workshop training. I do one-on-one coaching. I get to work with a lot of different people in different industries around the country. Um, but we serve about 75% of our clients are all law enforcement. Thank you so much for doing it. And thanks for your service as a police officer as well. You left police work and you are married and I believe you're married to your spouse's uh, combat veteran? He is. He's a recently retired Marine, did 20 years, and nothing but combat tours. He uh, he was a combat magnet, much like I was in my law enforcement career. Well, uh, please tell him thank you for his service as well. I don't know the military part of it. I grew up uh, in a military family, a Navy family. And by the way, Virginia Beach, Virginia brings back lots of memories of my childhood. Because I grew up, I uh, spent much of my life in Norfolk, Virginia and Virginia Beach, Virginia. And the funny thing is, uh, my mindset about Virginia Beach and Norfolk was before becoming a cop. And there's a definite shift in the mindset. W- would you be, would it be safe to say that you view Virginia Beach differently than I did before police work? Without a doubt. It is a great city, the whole Hampton Roads area. There's a huge tourist area for a lot of reasons. And then there's the real life and the things that the police guard from the law-abiding citizens and the tourists. And it's nonstop, even in places like that have a great reputation. And by the way, Virginia Beach has a great reputation. Uh, the department has a great reputation. Uh, they had a great one when I was a teenager. So th- th- they're no strangers to violent crime either. No, not at all. Probably really diverse violent crime because now you've got 
the transient military bases. You've got the multiple cities all very close together and a really diverse population in every sense of the way. That's one of the things I love about that area. I, I tell people I grew up with people from all over the world, not just all over the United States, being a military family in the Navy. We had people from the Philippines. We had people from that were from assigned to other Navy departments in other parts of the world that were there. Uh, and we were exposed to everybody. It was a great place to grow up as a kid. It's, it is. It's really a great area. I was born in Norfolk. My, my family's Navy as well. But we got moved before I was two. So I only really knew it from the policing perspective. So it's interesting to hear both. One of the things that I remember going back, and and I've said this on the year before, uh, I was a cab driver in Norfolk before going to uh, Maryland and then eventually to Baltimore. And one night I picked up a woman at the airport whose husband didn't come to pick her up. And she said, listen, he's way overdue. This isn't right, you know, and uh, he's a retired military officer. And so he drove to her house in Hampton Roads and his car was there, which started making the little radars go off in my head. Something bad's going on. Then she asked me to bring the luggage in and I found him in his chair and he died by suicide from a a handgun. Uh, And, you know, that... I wasn't prepared for that. At 18 years of age, there's no way of preparing someone for that. But that was not uncommon in my police career. No, I don't think that's uncommon in any city. And I dare to say maybe even more common in a heavily military city. I went to those all the time. Or we'd get the severe PTSD episodes from the SEALs or for someone else who would try to take our guns because they thought we were insurgents. So that military aspect changed a lot of things just for, just for the policing side of the house as well. I'm glad you said that, Carrie, because when we had veterans who were in, in trouble, we have veterans with substance abuse issues or we have veterans with uh, mental health issues. It's quite often the police that got called and we were there trying to find ways to get them help. There's a real kindred spirit. There's, a, there's a, a big family connection, not to sound super corny, between law enforcement and our military veterans. And a lot of times our hands are tied, but when you have a military veteran in distress, it's usually the police they encounter first. Absolutely. Yeah, I would say most of the time. Having said that, do you find that that places a different perspective or different demand on the law enforcement resources in an area like Virginia Beach? I think it creates one of those ongoing arguments of do we need mental health, do we need police, when police really have to be the jack of all trades, especially since they brought in the CIT program. And oftentimes, I think in retrospect, the military that are in crisis, they want to see police. As long as they're not in an episode where they see a uniform and they think we are enemy, because I ran into that. Mm-hmm. where I had guys who, like I said, went for my gun, thought I was an insurgent. He then thought all the cars around us were exploding and was telling me to look out for IEDs. And I think we could work with them, but it is. How do I help you? How do I respect you? And when they were SEALs, okay, you have more tactical training than I do. Yeah. And now the safety measure is completely different than police helping a non-trained citizen. Most of the people that we dealt with in that capacity, they uh, were combat veterans. 
they had a lot of issues as a result of that or com- a result of that and other issues in their life. And we were problem solvers. Most of it was, the vast majority was not violent. And uh, thank goodness for that. And we usually had a good rapport with them. But it was very frustrating because we dealt with the same people like every week. Exactly. Because they, they haven't gotten the help they need. And you're right, you do the, you do the same thing, the same response on repeat. And at least in my experience, you're kind of just hoping that eventually it clicks and that you stop getting called back to that house. But other than doing what you can with your training and giving them resources, they have to go get the help or they have to get into a program. There's only so much you can do. Right. And it's a big burden to throw on a 20-something-year-old that you've got to handle and try to make life right for someone who's dealing with complex issues, substance abuse issues, mental health disorders, post-traumatic stress issues, family dynamic problems, all those things, and sometimes in a quite hostile environment. And everybody that's been involved in police work knows one of the most unpredictable calls for service you can go to one of the highest chances you have of being seriously injured if not killed are domestic family disputes this is the law enforcement today show we are talking with carrie wooten carrie is a former law enforcement officer from virginia beach virginia and also president of mindset enterprise enterprises get more information about them at mindsetenterprise.net don't go anywhere i'm gonna take a short break we'll be right back be sure to look for the Law Enforcement Today radio show all over social media. We're on Facebook. Look for Law Enforcement Today radio show. On MeWe.com, look for Law Enforcement Today radio show. On Twitter, follow L-E-T radio show P-O-1. On Instagram, follow L-E-T radio show podcast. On Rumble, look for Law Enforcement Today radio show. And on Gab.com, search for Law Enforcement Today radio show. Again, our website is letradioshow.com. Hope to see you online soon. Back to our conversation with Carrie Wooten, former law enforcement officer from Virginia Beach, Virginia Police Department, also married to a United States military veteran. Your spouse is a Marine Corps veteran? Marine Corps, yes. Uh, Tell your spouse, I said, thank you for your service as well, and thank you. I'm trying to get a lot better saying that. I sometimes forget, and shame on me because I know what this job does to people. And I know, I'm referring to to police work, I know the sacrifices, the mental, the emotional, and quite often physical sacrifices that that our law enforcement people make and the toll it takes on our family. So when I say thank you for your service, I mean it from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. I feel it, so I appreciate it. Is it just me, or do you find it difficult when people say thank you for your service and how to reply? It is. It's hard. You kind of just say thank you and smile, but at least for me, it's a, why am I being thanked? I signed up for this. Yeah. It it, it has some internal conflict for me. (laughs) One of the things that I think that we as a police family have done for too long is we've relied on the news media to tell our stories, and they've done a horrible job. And recently, last few years, they have just been so biased in reporting. So one of the things I think we need to do to take our command staff to task is to say, listen, when an officer does something that's outstanding, is very heroic, 
whether it be standing tall in a gunfight or, or saving people from a burning building, whatever it might be, one of the first things that people do when they say something about it in the news media, they go, I was in the right place at the right time just doing my job. And we tried to, we're humble about it, which is great. But people don't appreciate, if they don't know, if we don't tell them what we've been through, they'll never know. You're absolutely right. Because they, they don't know what law enforcement goes through. And I think a huge part of it is they're not necessarily supposed to know, right? How graphic, how violent, how dangerous their backyard is because you want your community to feel safe and secure in their homes and not necessarily know about the drug deal going on around the corner or the murder a few blocks down. You want to protect them from that, but because we protect it, I think in general the public has no idea. They'll say, oh, well, you law enforcement, you just take people to jail for nonsense and write tickets, which is a very small percentage of what we actually do day in and day out. It's a very, very small percentage. Uh, One of the things I want to focus on is, you know, I signed up for this. You're right. But the truth is, I thought I had a good idea of what I was going into, but I was very wrong. I didn't, I wasn't prepared for the level of violence that we're going to see. The, the violence inflicted on other people, on family members, and the violence that was inflicted upon me. I wasn't prepared for that at all. Would that be your estimation of how the job was? Without a doubt. I knew or assumed that there were some people, there were some bad people, there were some violent people, there was plenty of crime, but I had no idea how violent and hateful and emotional, I mean, highly emotional, people could get, especially with their own family. And I think you don't really know until you've seen it firsthand and until you've seen it over and over again firsthand. One of the things I struggle with the most is uh, crimes against children. Children and the elderly always seem to affect me the most, uh, and or people who were not physically able to defend themselves. They had special needs or whatever it might be. And I stumbled across a photo, an old crime lab photo, of a, a young boy who's probably like three years old that was on my lap at the emergency room who I'd taken from his family because his mother, it turns out, was burning him with lit cigarettes. And uh, there was a bond that happened right away. And I, I hope he's doing well today. I don't know. But every now and then I think of that young guy. And that was maybe 35, 40 years ago. That doesn't surprise me at all. I think we remember all of those kinds of cases. And I still remember the, the first infant homicide I went to. I worked a lot of death investigations. They were hardly ever natural deaths. Once in a while, I'd get the 95-year-old man who went in his sleep. But I went to so many graphic, violent death investigations that our homicide detectives called me the Black Widow because when I was working, they knew that bizarre, violent things were going to happen. And that takes me, your story takes me right back to this 14-month-old that was murdered by his mom and his older siblings that were severely abused and neglected and my wake-up call of going to that case. And you go there, you have a job to do. When you're heading to these jobs, these calls, and you start thinking, well, at least I did, 
this is what I do first. This is second. This is third. Protect the crime scene. Do this. Try to render first aid. All these other things. And you try to, I don't want to say like a robot because that's never really quite fair. As a matter of fact, I broke down many times in tears, but as is in a patrol car afterwards, it wasn't on scene. Was that how you were when you responded to this call? Of course. I was trained a certain way. And I think you are trained in a very methodical manner because you do have a job to do and you have to cross your T's and dot your I's. And no matter how scary or graphic or disturbing the case may be, your job is to keep people safe, preserve the crime scene, make sure everything is documented so everything is ready for court. That's the nature of the job. But everyone is still a human behind the badge. And I think the training to get the job done and trying to balance the human side is where we develop a lot of our PTSD and a lot of our mental health challenges. Take us back to that crime scene when you get there. Uh, Were you the first officer on the scene? I was. So I was the second one dispatched. Um, It was a neighboring zone of mine. And honestly, the first emotion I had had nothing to do with the case. It was unresponsive infant. I made the assumption while I'm still running priority that it was a SIDS case. It was a 14-month-old or unresponsive due to some other choking or medical, natural medical emergency. And as the comments are coming out, infant is blue, hasn't been breathing, is rigid, you know, all the other things that say this kid has been dead and dead for a while. And my first emotion is, on the assist, why isn't my partner already there? I can see their car is right next to that building. And I got frustrated at my partner because they didn't go to the case. They waited until I was there, so I hit on scene, and now I was the primary officer, and it was my responsibility. For those who don't know, and just, that was about, my first- just about every agency, when you have a, a homicide or unattended death or unexpected death, the first officer on the scene is the one who buys the call, for lack of better words, because they have the initial observations for any crime scenes been disturbed and has occurred. Uh, they have the mental picture first, and they can testify in court that way. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. We are talking with Kerry Wooten, former law enforcement officer. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Are you wondering where you can find more great podcasts? Head to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, and discover other fantastic podcasts like this one. Also available on our free app, all at letradioshow.com. Back to our conversation with Kerry Wooten on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Kerry is a former law enforcement officer from the Virginia Beach, Virginia Police Department, an area I love and have great memories of. Before we went to break, Kerry, we're talking about a homicide call that you had to handle. And it involved a 14-month-old who was dead and his siblings, or I don't know the gender, male or female siblings, were very malnourished. Was this a family member who did it? It was. So the mom was a known prostitute and drug addict in the area. And the story that I got from mom was the baby wouldn't stop crying. She did kill her 14-month-old and obviously had not been taking care of her other children. Of her three and her four-year-old, they were still in diapers. It was November. They, it was cold. They didn't have clothes to wear. It was a mess of a situation. 
And as I entered the scene, I am 22. I've been on about 18 months. So I'm still a kid. I am the only one on my shift that day that is not a parent. So the experience for me is vastly different from everyone else who showed up and could relate to having their own children. And as I go into the scene, I'm still in that very methodical process of, okay, I know that there is a dead child somewhere. Let me go do that. Okay, there are 15 people in this two-bedroom apartment. I don't know who did this yet. Now let's start interviewing. Let's get it. Let's secure the scene. Let's go through this highly detailed and critical first responder process as I make phone calls and get everything organized. As soon as I get through the methodical phase, and therefore six hours probably, like most um, most homicide investigations go, and I'm okay. I go on to the next call. I have the rest of my shift. I'm doing fine. Some of my assisting officers are not doing as well. They were mothers themselves of young children. I can only imagine how that felt. And I was good. I think this was a turning point for me in the profession to really learn about trauma and how we see trauma on a daily basis. And it's so much our norm. We don't even notice when something horrific is going on. And it wasn't until... A few years later, when I had my first child, that I actually had issues with this case. I was genuinely okay, and then I had nightmares. Remembering every detail of the case, every inch of the apartment that is still ingrained in my memory, and we're going back to November 2012, I still, I could draw a picture of that apartment and the children, and I would wake up with my own challenges, screaming to my husband that my 14-month-old in the room next to us was dead and that I had these nightmares of what he looked like and I would have the night sweats and all of the trauma associated with it. And it took that many years to come back and haunt me. And if you take something like that and multiply it over a 10-year career, a 20-year career for law enforcement all over the country... I think now the public can get a snippet of what the job actually looks like. I think one of the best metaphors or explanations I've ever heard for this is that when you graduate the police academy, they give you a a state-of-the-art, high-tech, top-of-the-line backpack. And every time you go to a call for service that's got any kind of trauma, you pick up a pebble and you put it in that backpack. And some calls are really big and they're stones. Some are boulders. Some are just tiny pebbles. And some are barely bigger than a grain of uh, of salt or a, a grain of sand at the beach. But one day, after all those years of all that accumulation, if you don't find a way to get and empty out some of this these, these rocks, the whole thing's going to collapse and you're going to fall apart. I think that's a perfect metaphor. And I think that's why so often we see these suicide rates and you say, well, they've been working for 20 years. They handled the job for 20 years. Why are these officers committing suicide now? Well, their backpack just got too heavy. Yeah. And then there's there's these other things we pick up along the way that become great coping skills that uh, 
self-medicating with alcohol, other risky behavior. Um, there's a lot of things that people will do to try to escape the, the, the mindset in the head and, and without getting graphic about it. Uh, it may work for a while and then that becomes a problem in and of itself. And one of the big things is, hey, I was fine. I bounced back in my 20s and 30s. It was fine. Now I'm, I'm 38 and 39 and I'm totally useless. Why is this not working? Right. I think we do a lot of work on ourselves, unfortunately, way too late. And I know we talk about, in my company a lot, but the conversation of why do we wait 10 years or 20 years to say, hey, trauma like this doesn't happen to the normal person day in and day out. And I know we signed up for it. I know this is the job, but you're still just men and women and moms and dads who are going to work, putting in their hours and trying to come home. It doesn't make you superhuman and completely resilient to every kind of trauma. You're just trying to navigate it the best you can for as long as you can. You mentioned in your story about this homicide. There's, I'm sure there's many other that you went through. You didn't get the name Black Widow because everything was great around you all the time. <laughs> right. I, I say that in a, in a very endearing way. I don't mean that in a mean way. But in, in my career, most of the violence I went through, the really horrible stuff, uh, I, until the very end, was in my 20s and to like 30. I got married at 30, and then I started to change a little bit. And then when our first child came along, our, my wife was pregnant with our first child, I began to become afraid that I could not protect them. I agree with you, and I think I had that same mental shift as soon as I became a parent. And I saw the real dangers of the world. I also realized I wasn't invincible. I think I had that very common early 20s I'm going to drive fast and chase bad guys through the night, and this job is awesome, which it was. It was still a whole lot of fun, even when it was dangerous. And it was kind of that typical rookie mindset, but I didn't have kids waiting for me at home. I didn't have a husband who wasn't allowed to watch the news when I was at work because I didn't want him to see a shooting and wonder if I was the one involved. We had those house rules similar to a lot of police that I know, and having a family and changing that mindset of how do I keep my kids safe? How am I a nurturing mom and a productive parent, but doing this at the same time? I think there's a huge learning opportunity for me. And I think you're, you're making it sound, and I don't mean this negatively, you make it sound almost clinical. Like it's, a, it's kind of antiseptic. Here, here's the, yeah. the deal. We were very good at this policing thing for a very long time. You said I was... I was young, invincible. Even when I was being shot at, I kind of liked that a lot as a big adrenaline rush, chasing mm -hmm. murderers and all that stuff. Look, I would chase a murderer into an alley who was armed with a gun in a gunfight in a blink of an eye. But asking a girl I didn't know to dance at a nightclub was petrifying. It just, <laughs> something about where I got to in my late 20s was totally out of balance. I think the, the fear is different. You're talking fear based on something you're trained to do, and you know that you're going to chase the bad guy into the dark alley because it's what you're trained to do, and there is an adrenaline rush. But then you're trying to be that regular guy out of uniform, and I think we all had to figure out how, how do I separate the two, but how do I make sure I'm also the same person 
all around. <laughs> it's a big challenge. We're talking with Carrie Wooten. Carrie is a former law enforcement officer and also president of Mindset Enterprises. Their website is mindsetenterprise.net. When we return, we're going to talk more about her experience in law enforcement and something most law enforcement officers don't have to go through. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. The place to be online is our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. You'll get access to unique news articles, editorials, and so much more. That's Law Enforcement Today Radio Show on Facebook. Back to our conversation with Carrie Wooten on the Law Enforcement Today Show. Carrie is a former law enforcement officer from Virginia Beach, Virginia Police Department, great agency, great reputation, great part of the United States, now residing in the uh, Atlanta area. And she's the president of Mindset Enterprises, online at mindsetenterprise.net. We're talking before the break, Carrie, about how we began to change and the trauma started you know, like piling up and we began to be different you went through something in your career that a lot of us don't go through and that involved uh, a terrorist that was a probably once in a career case for me yeah (laughs) we've had calls where and this is where i don't even bother explaining to people anymore uh that aren't in law enforcement uh they'll say well if someone's suicidal what do you do just like beat them up do you shoot them and i remember dealing with a woman on valentine's day who was threatening to cut herself with a straight razor and we're in her hot blazing hot kitchen and she's on one side of the the table i'm on the other and the other officer's next to me and i mentioned something about being valentine's day and after a long conversation her hand got sweaty and she put the straight razor down on the table and i kicked the table as hard as i could to get dislodge it want to break my toe Uh, and then we got her under control got her to a hospital got her the help she needed but i'll never forget how I got that connection with her and I was seeking like my whole mind I'm talking just randomly talking my whole time I'm thinking got to find a way to connect got to find a way to connect and Valentine's Day was it you got this call for a terrorist tell us briefly about that so like most calls we had no idea it was going to be a terrorist this call actually came out I was dispatched by myself to uh, harassing phone calls which generally means someone's you know, they're calling the hotel, they're doing annoying text messages, things like that. Hotel calls. And then as I'm driving, kind of on my own time, ready to take a report, they start updating the comments. So dispatch is writing it, but not telling me over the radio that a man just checked in, gave his name and said, call the FBI. I just killed all these people in Florida and I have a dead body in my trunk. And so as I'm pulling up, I skim through the comments and say, wait a minute. <laughs> Things are a little bit different. I call an assist and some supervisors over. And then we start talking to the hotel. Eventually, I work my way upstairs. I meet this man who speaks about four different languages, and he's alternating between all four. Like you said, the rapport building piece, I spend three hours with him in his hotel room using Google Translate, and he's on a a prescription cocktail at the same time and tells me that he is manic bipolar and schizophrenic and, and, and. So I have all of my training going on at once. He's also armed. We take care of that. And three hours later, we realize that he has a car outside. 
it is a bomb. He has a hit list. He is on his way to D.C. He says that he's going to make 9-11 look like a warm-up, and we find a lot of evidence associated with that, and we discover his links to al-Qaeda. And while I'm doing this, I'm building rapport. I don't know if there are other bombs in the hotel room, so I'm kind of just hoping I don't get myself or my supervisors blown up. And we're talking to people in Germany and people in Israel and trying to figure it all out. It was by far the most challenging, scariest call I ever went to. It was so complicated. And once we had him, the marshals came and took him, and that was the end of the story. And I got a nice little thank you note from the marshals. I guess people were supposed to be blown up, and they weren't, so it was a win for us and everybody else involved. But they don't prepare you for things like that. <laughs> no, well, how do you, You're not trained for that. How do you go from that, that level of, oh, sorry, I can't even think of the word I'm looking for, that level of mental engagement and and. You've got to be on fire with all your senses when all that's going on to the, okay, it's over. Now what? Let's go have a cup of coffee. I mean, what do you do with yourself after that? It was, it was the most anticlimactic, disappointing ending to a case I ever experienced. It was like a high five from the marshals. Hey, thanks for what you do. See you later. I don't know what I was looking for. Maybe I wanted to know the whole guy's story. But like most cases... They just end, and you're just you're just a city cop. That's we know the, that's how the exact much you do, way of putting. It. I, I always want to know. Sometimes <laughs> I want whatever happened to so and so that like that this little boy I talked about that that was being burned with cigarettes by his mother, and we formed a connection until the doctors had him, and then he went to Department of Social Services, and I don't know what happened to him after that because you don't see him in court. Right. I, I don't know how think- he is today. I hope he's okay. I think we could all make a huge list of all those people that we wish we knew what happened. How are they? Did they make it? What are they doing now? Especially little kids like that. I have a laundry list of of stories similar, and it's the funniest thing because you get so attached, but you're doing it day in and day out, and then you don't get the rest of the story. Because at the end of the day... You're just a city employee, and you're just supposed to do your hours and go home. And then uh, you, you leave the job for whatever reasons. In my case, you're hurt, you're retired, and then you're left to, like, what do I do with the rest of my life? And now I've got my family, and I feel like a fish out of water sometimes. Yeah, because there's nothing else like it. You're right. Then you, then you have to dig deep and self-reflect and say, okay, what now? How do I, you know, can I, can I go work corporate? Do I go go back into law enforcement. I think that's why you have so many retired and prior law enforcement involved in training law enforcement or in nonprofits or something that gives them that way to continue to serve, even if they're not in a uniform anymore. Two things come to mind. I've had many guests on the show. And one was a guy named Tom who was United States Special Forces, Army Delta Force, and he was part of the ground force at uh, the Battle of Mogadishu, made famous in the movie Black Hawk Down. Uh, And while he didn't go into a lot of details about the incident, he did talk vaguely about all the combat he's been through, and then after retiring, and then when he started to slow down, then he realized 
just how off center he was and he wasn't the guy he wanted to be. I think when you're in a career that is so busy, that's high adrenaline and everyone around you, all your buddies are doing the same thing. I think you don't realize that you're off center because you're, you're the norm in your own group. And just like that, you retire, you try to transition. You say, wait a minute, I don't know what I did the last 20 years. What am I supposed to be doing now? So you've obviously made a lot of progress and we don't have time to discuss that. Maybe we'll have to have you back again in the future. But part of what you've learned along the way, post-law enforcement, post-getting over the homicides and the terrorists and, and the trauma that we see daily, you've somehow taken those tools and used that to help other people with what you're doing now. Absolutely. And it's helping people. You nailed it on the head. <laughs> what do you do? It breaks my heart, because I've experienced it, to see people that are miserable at work, are victim to toxic leadership, and feel lost. So we do the coaching and the training and all the development to help people take care of themselves, become fulfilled personally and professionally, and how to lead others to do the same. Life is too short, we work too many hours, and it's so within our reach to love what we're doing day in and day out. I think there's no reason for us to feel any different. One of the things I say to people all the time, and it doesn't matter what your background is, it doesn't matter what, what you're recovering from, whether it be law enforcement or a victim of a horrible crime or, or a lot of things, uh, there comes a point where we begin to learn that we're giving a tool set on how to pick and choose and build the life we want. And that sounds like what you are doing and what you're helping others do. That's exactly right. And I honed my skills like we all do with whatever our expertise is and studied and connected and you know went back to school and got a few more very expensive pieces of paper to say I know what I'm talking about. And in the end, it's just to provide more tools and in-depth resources so other people can experience what I get to experience, which is a happy, fulfilled, influential life with my husband, with my kids, and with my work. Get more information about Carrie Wooten and what she does at MindsetEnterprise.net, also on social media as well. Carrie, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today show. We've got another great guest heading your way next week. Don't miss it. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. We'll be right back.